0: Hello everybody and welcome to a recent installment of Borders Blatherings. This is a podcast which shines a light on the curious, shadowy and often very magical history of the Scottish borderlands. I'm joined as ever by Mary Craig. Uh, First question, Mary, how are you today?
1: I'm very well, thank you, Doug. How are you?
0: Not too bad. I have a little bit of a cold, so I hope that doesn't come over as we're recording.
1: I'm sure we'll be fine. And we're joined today by Cassie, who's sleeping very nicely and quietly for us.
0: Yes, and Cassie, please don't snore. Oh, she can <laughs> snore if she wants. <laughs> and definitely don't chase rabbits in your sleep. Uh, Mary, today we're diverging a little bit from the norm because we're not talking about a particular region or an event or a time period, as we often do. Today, I think at my request, I want to pose a question to you. Mm -hmm. And that question is, just how Scottish is the Scottish Borders region? And I think that up to now, we've covered enough topics that we feel safe enough to (laughs) take this one on. Um, I should make clear to listeners that I'm not presenting anything as a fact here, but simply observations as someone who's lived and worked in various places around the world. Mm -hmm. And as neither of us is borders born and bred, Mm -hmm. I think it's natural that we have comparisons and observations about life here now that we live here. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that you can respond to my observations (laughs) by... Given we have the great tapestry of Scotland now nearby, <laughs> that you can weave some kind of historical thread around my observations, would that be fair?
1: That's fine. Nice segue as well. Hmm, I, like, I like the I like the weaving bit as we're in the borders. Yeah, um, it's very interesting how Scottish the Scottish Borders. I'm going to bat that right back at you. What do you mean by Scottish? Because that's a heck of a slippery term.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, let me, let me start because (laughs) I, I made a few crib notes because I asked for this podcast. Scottish, a nationality Mm -hmm. or a way of looking at the world. There are, there are, there are various thoughts on that. So maybe we should start by what do we mean by Scottish? Um, for anyone listening, I would like to recommend a book I read some years ago, a book by an American historian called Arthur Herman book is entitled how the Scots invented the modern world now Mary whether you you uh, appreciate this or not it focuses very heavily on the Enlightenment Mm -hmm. so we have David Hume Adam Smith all the usual suspects but he argues I think quite convincingly and bear in mind he doesn't claim um, Scottish origin Uh, 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 or descendancies, so he has no, what do they say, skin in the game. Um, He argues that it's a a way of viewing the world rather than a nationality.
1: Mm -hmm. I don't know how
0: you would react to that.
1: Well, you see, I'm coming at it from a completely different angle, Mm -hmm. just to be annoying, in that I tend to have the the long view of history, long jury, as it's called, People have been living in the Scottish borders for about 9,000 years. The concept of Scotland, or being Scottish, only pitches up about 1,000 years ago. Yes,
0: yes. So you've
1: got 8,000 years of when people were toodling about here, doing oh their thing, <laughs> and they had no idea that they were Scottish. Yep. So it's a very modern concept, Scottish, and it's... Yes, it can be a way of viewing the world, but it still comes back to how would you define yourself? As, is, is Scottish living here? Is it being born here? Is it having an affinity with a place? It's a really slippery term when you start picking it apart. Um, a way of viewing the world? Possibly. So do the Scots view the world differently from the English or the Germans or the Dutch or the Americans?
0: That's a brilliant point and a very moot point because there are those... I live in a very shades of grey world rather than a black and white world myself. But there are those who would argue that there is more that unites us when talking about Scotland and England than divides us. And there mm-hmm. are others who would counter argue that there's, there are more ways in which we're different.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, I, I don't wish to go down that path particularly. Mm-hmm. That, that That'll drag us into politics of the moment. But um i'm of the view that the 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 sense of liberty humanity fairness somehow has a, uh, its origins in the scottish enlightenment mm-hmm. i'm thinking of david hume when he wrote uh, about liberty and authority uh, and and the balance between yeah uh so basically, I'm I'm plugging a book that, that I have no vested interest in. But I do recommend, especially to American listeners, that yeah. they find a copy and read through it. And read through yeah. Mm-hmm. it, yeah. It, it will certainly enlighten them. Sorry, mm. Mary.
1: <laughs> That's allowed.
0: Um, so what I thought we could do is I just fire a few observations at you. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you talk me through some of these. It, okay. It's not a question of right or wrong. No, no, no. We both, upsticks, and eventually now, having lived in different parts of the world doing different things, live here in the Scottish Borders. So comparisons and observations are for me inevitable. And I've often been led to seeing the Scottish Borders area... <laughs> As somehow a small country that that lies between Scotland and England, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. could you enlighten me on that, please? <laughs> but, yeah,
1: you get a lot of that in border regions. <coughs> border regions are often like that. If you look at, for example, if you look at uh, Northumberland just over the border, yeah, they are very different from their southern counterparts in London, and it's and it's the same on the Welsh borders, the Welsh marshes. So whenever you have a border, whenever you have a, a political or a geographical border put in place. Um, yeah, it makes the people feel a little bit different. It makes the people feel a little bit separate from the centre of power, wherever the centre, because centres of powers are never on borders. If you look at any country in Mm. Europe, the capital city, the centre of power is never on the borderland. It's in the heart of the country. So borders are always seen as slightly and because borders are porous, people move across them. How dare they? So so you know, the, the folk in the centre are never quite sure what's going on in the borders. And it's always if you go back to if you actually go back to the map of Mundi, the great medieval map of the world. Which is a fantastic map. Anybody who gets a chance to look at it, it's a hoot and a half. Because you've got the world, as they saw it then, and then round the edges near the borders are all these strange creatures. Yeah, There are people with one leg. There are people with dog's heads. So border areas are always a little bit shadowy. They are different. They are other mm. from the central area. So yeah, the Scottish border has been a country in and of itself. Yes, they have their own language, their own customs, their own beliefs, and are quite feisty about it. So, yeah, it as a separate country. I would agree with you on that one.
0: That makes a lot, a lot of sense. Now, you used the term fixed border. To what extent has that border between Scotland and English England changed over the years? Oh, because here it's, we it's go. not just a line on a, oh, uh, on no. a map.
1: No, no, no. Well, the the border gets fixed round about the year. Here we go with me and my dates. Let's check my dates. The ba- Battle of Carham is in 1018, and that's when the border between Scotland and England, as we recognise it today, it's, was fixed. It's fixed. OK. And as yeah. I say, before that, there was no concept of Scotland as a land. You were a Pict or you were a Scot or you were a Votadini or whichever tribe you were in. Mm-hmm. Um, But that border was utterly contested. I mean, you've got the Scottish Wars of Independence... When basically the Scottish borders is occupied by English troops, you've got the Cromwellian protectorate. Um, we've got the Great Debatable Lands. We need to talk about them at some point. I was going to mention so, that. Yeah, that so, gives so, us a clue. So this border, you know, London and Edinburgh could put all the lines on maps they wanted. As far as the locals were concerned, that border was a movable feast. Yeah. And if you take the example of Berwick on Tweed, um, Berwick on Tweed changed approximately twelve times in four hundred years. Uh-huh. It was, you know, depended on which day it was, whether it was Scots or English. So yeah, that border, as I say, Edinburgh and London were determined that was a fixed border, but for the locals, no, it was not a fixed border at all. It was a meaningless border. Um, you know, and it's much like borders today. You know, you've got farmers who've got two sheep on one side of the field and two sheep on the other, mm-hmm. and the border runs through the centre. So a border is, is what you make it. Is it, yeah. is it a border that divides or is it a border that, that unites? the folks on other sides of the borders.
0: Yeah, well, clearly there's a clue in the term, debatable lands. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit more about that?
1: The debatable then? lands are, depending on your opinion, great fun and <laughs> the story of, of ne'er-do-wells and rogues, <laughs> or it's an utter disgrace. You take your choices. So it's the 16th century, and um, the crowns in London and Edinburgh are concentrated in London and Edinburgh because both of the royal houses at that time were under threat from all sorts of other people. Yeah, yeah. Mostly people related to them. They're all, you know, backstabbing each other. So Edinburgh didn't really actually care what was happening in the borders and London certainly didn't care what was happening in their northern border. So while they're busy politicking in their capital cities... The northern lords were thinking, well, if I could just sneak a little bit of land here and there and whatever, and nobody's paying any attention. So you get up to things. You know, when the cat's away, the mice will play. And so you would have genuine situations where you're on one side of the border and your sheep have strayed onto the other. You go and you get your sheep back. Now, there were laws in place. The march laws were in place if people broke the laws or things like that happened. But then maybe three of your sheep had gone over the border and you went over and, oh, dear me, you brought five sheep back. Well, you know, it was only two sheep. didn't really matter. But then somebody would come over and say, well, there was five sheep missing. I'm going to take ten sheep back. And before you know where you are, this tit-for-tat develops into possibly guerrilla warfare is the best way to describe it, where you had families raiding across the border and they would pitch up, usually in the autumn, because in the autumn you slaughter your your cattle, your sheep, you know, the majority to salt over the winter. So you pitch up, you steal all the cattle and sheep, You rape all the women, you kill all the men, and just for good measure, you burn the house to nothing, so that all the survivors are left with nowhere to live over a Scottish border's winter. And that happened in North Northumberland. And this went on for forever and a day, while, as I say, Edinburgh and London were busy with their own politics. And then when they realised the chaos that was going on in these debatable lands, Edinburgh blamed London, and London blamed Edinburgh. And so this border that had been nicely written on a nice little map suddenly became meaningless. And everybody kept saying, well, it's your problem. You sort out your guys. No, you sort out your guys. And this went on for a a fair number of years. We're talking a good sort of, you know, few hundred years. eh, Sorry, few tens of years. And then you get to the stage where eventually it got ridiculous. You know, it was not safe. The lands were so bad that people were avoiding going through the land. And the biggest problem you have is Berwick-on-Tweed is a huge trading port, and you couldn't get to Bury Contwey, and there was no way to get there safely, and eventually the Crowns went, no, enough's enough's enough, and they imposed the March laws. But what they actually then did was they got some of the families, who were known as Reavers, which is just Scottish for robbers, they got these Reaving families to snitch on each other, so the Armstrongs are snitching on the Grahams, and the Grahams are snitching on the Cares, and the Cares are snitching on the Charlton's. And so you end up with two or three of the Reeving families become the big border families. Yeah. And three or four of the others end up at the end of a hangman's noose. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, but that border that was written on a map was, was meaningless to the local people. It didn't matter. Yeah. It was, it was pointless. Yeah.
0: Now, it, I, I'm, I'm also fascinated if I can take you a little bit back in time from the 15th century and reference the Hollywood Oscar winning blockbuster Braveheart which often depicts the head of the English army saying to one of the lords uh, who's assembled his people to fight, if you take your people off the field and don't fight us, we'll give you Newcastle. (laughs) (laughs) So to what extent have these sort of things shifted and shaped the ownership of land
1: on either side of the border? Yes, I mean, even actually before William Wallace, if you look at, um, you know, David I... David I owned huge tracts of land in England. And this actually really, really mattered because his focus was in England. He was an Anglo-Norman king. He was king of Scotland, but he was an Anglo-Norman king, not a Gaelic king. Because up to that time, Scotland was a mismatch. Obviously, you had the Northern Isles, you had the Western Isles, you had the Lord of the Isles, you had Glasgow and Strathclyde, which was chaotic. But you had an absolute divide between Northern and Lowland Scotland. Mm. And what you get is you get this divide where David has got lands in Huntington, which is quite far south. He's got lands right the way down there. So he is the Anglo-Norman. He starts introducing feudalism, which is an Anglo-Norman concept and bears no relation to Gaelic culture and the clan system. And so what you get in, in Lowland Scotland is you get Lowland Scotland, the borders, looking south to England. The language starts to change. You get less Scots spoken and more English spoken and so you get an even further divide. They're becoming yes. even more of a separate country from Highland Scotland because Highland Scotland's full of Highlanders who speak Gaelic. And then you've got Glaswegians who speak Ulster Scots and you've got people in the Scottish borders who speak speaking English. So they are becoming that separate country. Mm-hmm. And this moves forward right the way through the Wars of Independence. You have land ownership chopping and changing all of the time and the lands of the Scottish borders more or less under English occupation for for a long period of time, I mean, rocks, but a castle, things like that, owned by the English right, for yeah, forever. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's it's a movable feast down there.
0: Okay, and uh, that plays into to another thing I wanted to ask you about. Again, not a fact, but an observation. In terms of Scotland, I've lived in Edinburgh and Fife, and so I came to live here when I was quite an, an old person, but. One thing that struck me that I observed, having, having lived in different countries and worked in different countries around the world, the two things I wrote down, semi-feudalism and social deference. I became much more aware of that in the borders mm-hmm. than I had, say, when, when, I, when I lived in, in, in Edinburgh.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What's your reaction to the what I would call kind of semi-feudalism? A sense of place.
1: Yes, it's... Deference. If you look at Highland Scotland, in Highland Scotland you have your clan chief. Whatever clan you want, you've got your clan chief. And your clan chief is supposed to take care of the clan. Now, to be a clan chief is sometimes inherited, Mm -hmm. but it's sometimes not. Sometimes on merit. So you might be the son of the chief, but if you're a bit of a numpty and you can't take care of people, the clan gets rid of you. Mm -hmm. So you have situations where you're going to get a new clan chief. And there's a huge big party and there are stories of, of some um, clan chiefs who had lived in other areas and they're brought in to be yeah. the clan chief. And, you know, the, the, the clan chief is brought in and there's a huge feast going on and the clan chief says, oh, you didn't need to do that for me. And he instantly got sent packing because the, the feast wasn't for him. The feast was for the clan. So it means that you are a father figure but that you are no better than anybody Uh else. The guy that becomes clan chief is the biggest guy, the strongest guy, the fiercest guy. But once he stops being the biggest, strongest, fiercest guy, he can get replaced. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you come down to the borders, what you have, as I say, from David I, you have this Anglo-Norman influence where you've got succession by primogeniture, and what happens is that if you are the head of a family, because we have families, not clans the borders, you're head of a family, or you're the local laird, your son inherits no matter what. So you're giving deference to the position rather than the person. In clan culture, you're giving deference to that person, because they're doing a good job as clan chief. In the borders, you're giving preference to the Duke of Buclure, the Duke of Roxburgh. Yes. Whoever the Duke of or the Duke of Roxburgh Comes to, yeah. but because you don't, because that is deference due to the position, as opposed to respect which is earned by merit, then you end up with this nonsense of deference. you don't get that in the Highlands. It's he's clan chief, oh he's not a good clan chief, oh I've got no respect for him. Whereas in the Borders, you're being deferential to whoever the local laird or duke is because he is a local laird or duke. You don't have that sense of. You can't get rid of them. You can't pitch up and say to the Duke of Oxford, I don't like you anymore. Get lost, but we'll have your yeah. brother <laughs> instead or we'll have your cousin yep. instead. Or, yep. You can't, you can do that in the clan system. You're entitled. To, you've got the right to say that. You don't down here. So, so yeah, it's, it's not full feudalism as they had in England and France, but it's actually, in in some ways it's worse (laughs) because it's (laughs) a sort of hybrid (laughs) nonsense and that's where you get that deference level so you don't get that strength of being able to challenge. Yeah,
0: yeah, my my observation is based on personal experience, whether it be having a beer in a pub with local people Mm -hmm. or a Christmas dinner with local people Mm -hmm. and the topic of the union comes up or independence comes up or there's an election in the offing. I often think you're thinking with an English head, mm-hmm. Mr. or yeah. Mrs. Yeah. This is my experience. Mm-hmm. I I I everyone's entitled to an opinion, of course, yeah. but uh, this is just an observation.
1: Yeah. And of course because we had so many years of English occupation during the wars of independence mm-hmm. and so many years of occupation with um Cromwell and the Protectorate and then, of course, when you fast forward to to eighteen forty eight, the nineteenth century, there's a huge push about like let's just wipe Scotland off the map. Thank you very much. So you are being forced to be as English as you can be because England is where you make your money. Yes, England. So it's not that you're not Scottish in the Scottish borders, but you're not Scottish in the way Highland people are Scottish. You're not Scottish in the way Glaswegian people are. I mean, I'm very conscious. Of, I think of the Scottish Borders, to me, comes across as quite an English part of the world. Yes. But I know that Scottish borderers will go to Glasgow and they'll say, oh, well, it's an Irish part of the world. And I'm aware of the fact that there's a huge uh-huh. Irish influence in Glasgow. <laughs> of course there is. Lots of Irish folk and it's great fun. Um but there is that way, of that that change. You know, the, 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 the influences that come in leave a lasting legacy, if you like. And I think in the Scottish borders, they've left that English legacy. When you have um, 1848, as we probably know, there were loads of little revolutions and revolts going on right across Europe. The British government, I'm going to be political here, as usual, the British government got their knickers in a knot, um, did nothing for ages and then panicked and then thought, oh, fuck, there's revolution here, and then there's the Scots and the Irish and the Welsh, and they'll be all grumpy, because we're a composite kingdom. And so what they did was they decided to dampen down their Englishness, but dampen down everything else, and everybody became British. And if you look at maps from that period, uh-huh, yes. that's why Scotland all of a sudden becomes North Britain.
0: Uh-huh, the hotel controversy. You know,
1: <laughs> and you get the North <laughs> British Railway Company and all yeah. these sorts of things. Yeah. Now... Although we, we've spoken before in another podcast about Walter Scott, who did an immense uh, great service to Scotland, sort of brain Scotland and the fore. But basically Highland Scotland gets ignored again. It's it's turned into a playground for Queen Victoria. Yeah. But Lowland Scotland is as anglicised as it can be. Yeah. English families are encouraged to move up to places like the borders, and encouraged to move up to places like Edinburgh and settle Um so that you can sort of flatten out the differences between between Scotland and England, because of the panic of 1848 and the fact that the revolution might kick off. Mm -hmm. So again, and yet there are borderers who are proudly Scottish, and quite rightly so. Uh But I would argue that what they're proud of is actually being a borderer. Not so much being Scottish.
0: <laughs> I would, there's no football team down here. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, dear. <laughs> sorry, oh dear.
0: In, yeah, but, <laughs> How, well, Albert, but, yeah, yeah it, it has a different feel for yeah, me. Yeah, it's a so, different feel. I mean, the countryside is, is wonderful. It's it's a pleasure to live here. Interesting question for me. Not far from here is the town of, say, Selkirk. And then beyond that, there is hawick would these two towns, for example, ever in history have been part of England?
1: Oh dear, we're going to have to talk about Selkirk and the Black Death, aren't we? Are we? Oh, okay. well, we are. Okay, the Great Pestilence, which came in the middle of the 14th century. Yeah. It's it's known as the Black Death, but it wasn't named that until later on. Yeah, so yeah. that's what I'm meaning by the Black Death, it's actually a Great Pestilence. Now, the problem was that it pitches up. Everybody is terrified. This this illness, whatever it was, scared the bejesus out of everybody. Mm-hmm. And what happened was people closed borders all over the, way, it's all scared over the place. It's scapegoat time.
0: <laughs> the
1: closed borders. You can't trade with this when you can't trade yeah. with them. And that yeah. actually makes sense. If you're going to stop a disease from moving, close things down. Absolutely. So what did Edinburgh do? Edinburgh closed the road between Scotland and England. And it said, nobody can trade. There can be no trade And it listed all the towns that were near the border. And they listed Selkirk as being in England. At which point Selkirk said, wait a minute, what do you mean we're (laughs) in England? Because the folk up in Edinburgh that didn't know the borders took one look at where the rivers were. And they thought that Selkirk, because of the way it sits (laughs) in the loop of the river, they thought it was over the border. So of course Selkirk gets cut off from any aid that Edinburgh can have because Edinburgh thinks it's in England. England knows it's not in England, it's in Scotland. So Selkirk ends up in no man's land, jumping... This is possibly why a few Selkirk folk have a strange relationship with Edinburgh, shall we put it like that? (laughs) Poor old Selkirk gets stuck in the middle and the Selkirk guilds, merchant guilds, had to scrape together a huge amount of silver, which they took up to Edinburgh and dumped on somebody's desk somewhere and said, oi, we are Scottish, thank you very much. But yes, that was, that was a moment and a half. It didn't do, Edinburgh did not do itself proud with that one.
0: No, in, in, indeed, indeed. That, that, that's fascinating. So the, the, the debatable one, over centuries, the, the, the debate has reached. Yeah, oh, it's still about,
1: debatable, yes.
0: You mentioned to me, um, some time ago when we were chatting over a coffee, you made some observations about the town of Berwick-upon-Tweed. Indeed. Um, I don't quite remember, but it was to do with (laughs) north-south. Can you remind me of the the detail of that? The
1: north, the northern half of Berwick-on-Tweed, which is the one that's lying north of the River Tweed, Uh has a very English feel to it. The southern half of the town, which lies south, and actually in the southern half of the Tweed, has a very northern feel to it. And of course,
0: why? (laughs) I have no idea. And of course, this is
1: a town which is in England, but their football team plays in the Scottish League. Uh huh.
0: Yeah.
1: It's one of those, and it's the one that it has a border riding. It's what it's one of the English, you know, it's an English town that has a border riding. But as I say, it has it has chopped and changed sides so many times. Yes. You know, it's been attacked by the English and sold to the Scots, and then ceded to the English, and then back to the Scots, and back and forth and back and forth. About twelve times that we know of, definitely. Um, How the poor folk in Berwick-on-Tweed knew what they were doing, I've no idea. Um, And it's actually really interesting because it's actually a prosperous town because, as I say, it's a a main port. But how they managed to sign trade treaties when they didn't know if they were Scots or English, uh, I I find that fascinating that that, uh, Berwick-on-Tweed does that. And, of course, you know, the vast majority of the town, the main part of the town, lies north of the Tweed. It's geographically, if you like, in Scotland.
0: Yeah, yeah. I remember in university days, the university bookshop was at Finns or Blackwells at the time. They were full of these tomes like, who are the Scots? And I, I'm beginning to feel, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: if you, if you go right back to my love of old history, if you go right back to, have you heard of the Kingdom of Bernicea? Uh, yeah, yeah, its yeah. northern border was the River Forth, and its southern border was the River Tees.
0: The tease, yeah,
1: and it lasted for a long, long time. If you look at people like the Gododdin tribe, the Gododdin tribe, which stretched from again just south of the Highland Highland Line all the way down to Wales, and that was that was where we were. That was all of that range of land, and I mean the the Gododdin. We know that they went down, they were the men of Gwyneth, and they were the men mm-hmm. of Gwydelion, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is why where we are is, is Stow of Weedale, Stou which of Weedale, was, Weedelion, yeah, yeah, originally. Yeah. So originally, originally we were all Welsh. We were Welsh. Um, yeah. Just to confuse matters <laughs> even more. Um, and there are still some Welsh place names in the borders. There are some Gaelic place names in the borders as mm-hmm. well. Uh, for those who don't think Gaelic came south of the Highland Line, it did, because there are some Gaelic place names in the borders. Um, you know, there's one just up the road from us, Corto Ferry. That's Gaelic. Yeah. Um, so yes, it's this, this definition of Scottishness and it's Scottish border Scottish. If we start picking at that, we'll be picking at all sorts <laughs> of places. You know, is Glasgow Scottish or is it Irish? You know, you end up picking away all of this. You know, I mean, the, the biggest example is if you look at, for example, if, if you look at like Greece, people have described Greece as a lily pond with a load of frogs. Sitting round it. Ah, yeah. Because, you know, the centre of Greece is the sea. Mm. It's not land. And if you look at the Western Isles of Scotland and Strathclyde and Argyll and Ulster, it's the same thing. The centre of their land is actually the sea. But there is no difference. Ulster Scots and Scots Scots is so similar. The, the, the myths are the same. The legends are the same. The the linguistically, languages. yeah. yes. Yeah. Now There's one for you, Mr Linguistics Man. <laughs> Explain to me why people in Edinburgh have a Scottish accent and it gradually changes as you go down through Midlothian and down through the borders. It's still Scottish, but it's changing slightly. Yes. And then the minute it hits that border, you cross that border and it's an English Northumberland accent. It's not a gradual change, it's an absolute, definite change. change. yeah, yeah. So what's all that about? I, I, I'm
0: not sure I know the answer to that, apart from, I, I don't want to be Darwinian, but a kind of evolution. Mm. Oh, Many of the students that I've worked with recently, on listening to our podcast, have said to me, Doug, you sound very Scottish on that. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. As if uh, when I'm working with them, I would somehow sound in any way different, oh, okay. which uh-huh. I personally don't believe that I do. Right? But it's interesting they pick up on that. So uh-huh. reaching out to your audience in some way, I, I, I I'm not sure.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, language is identity. When when I'm working with someone from, say, the former GDR in Germany, who is told that accent is terrible. Mm. Um. What should I do about it? I will I will argue it's part of the uh, kind of DNA. Yeah, it's part of DNA. Uh, and, 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 and go with it, live with it. Yeah. But, but language is so weaponized now.
1: Yes, yes. Um,
0: when I lived in the States, many people would, would say to me something like, um, yeah, for a Scotsman, your English is pretty good. <laughs>
1: Oh, that's damning you with faint
0: praise. Indeed. Now, I I have no wish to hit anyone for that, but it's how do you deal with that? You know, the, do you have televisions in Scotland? (laughs) You you deal with these things. If I could, I'd like to go back to (laughs) war. What is it good for?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Well, absolutely nothing, according (laughs) to the song. However, war must leave an imprint specifically on a border like the Scottish-English border, because even a numpty like me knows (laughs) that if the English troops were coming north, Mm -hmm. they would hit the borderlands first.
1: Yes, yes.
0: So what kind of residual stuff is going on as a consequence of that over the years?
1: You get troop movements through the borders, basically for about 300 years. You know, the Wars of Independence, and you've got the rough wooing, of course, with Henry VIII, yeah. and all this sort of stuff. Now, initially what you've got is you've got troops moving, and they're just moving through, and everybody goes, oh, it's the horrible English moving through again, right? And you, you know, send the girls up into the hills so they're safe and these sorts of things, and, you know, they might come back down, if they're retreating, they might come back down and burn your crops, and all that happens to do is, is cause resentment of the English troops. But because the period of time was so long, what you got was you got troops stationed here.
0: Yeah.
1: And human nature being human nature as it is, you ended up with babies being born, as you do. Because the soldiers are here and the girls are here and, you know, here we go. And so, as I say, you get babies born here. But then when the English troops are then withdrawn, not all of the English troops leave. Because they might have fallen in love with a wee lassie from Hoye or a wee lassie from Kelso and they might just want to stay here. So you get quite an exchange of that and because, especially during some of the wars where a lot of the troops that were sent up here didn't really actually want to fight us. They didn't really want to fight anybody. Uh-huh. You know, they were like, oh, I'm going to Scotland to fight somebody." They don't really want to. Not it. again. Not again. <laughs> you know, so you're trail- And these were often peasant farmers themselves who had just been being called on to go and do their duty for the Lord and Master sort of type thing. So, you know, you can always hide in a battle and you can always, like, pretend to be dead when you're not or maybe when the troops go back down you don't bother and you stay here. And you'll get an exchange of farming practices. You'll get an exchange of language. You'll get an exchange of customs. And so you'll get... Things, you know, just, oh, well, you, you know, your daddy's English and your granddaddy's English. And before you know where you are, they're embedded in these local communities. But they're bringing their folk tales and their legends and their myths and their ways of doing things up here. Um, so that's where you get that, that change and that, and again, it's, it's debatable. Are you Scottish? Are you English? You know, is, is, is your mum Scottish and your dad's English, but you're born in the borders? What does that make you? Well, how do you identify? You know, and does it really matter anyway? Yeah. So that's why, again, things are things are always moving on borderlands. That's why borderlands are so interesting. because that, been, There's I change.
0: Agree. I would love to do a podcast just on identity. Yes,
1: <laughs> it's, yes. It's
0: just a fascinating thing. Yeah. Can we maybe wrap things up now with a, <laughs> a thought that has just popped into my head? In In future, are we going to have... A child say, you know, it's amazing. My mum was a Remainer and my dad <laughs> <laughs> voted leave. Right, you never know, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm of mixed. <laughs> is that day coming? Possibly. hmm
1: Possibly. Well, it's, uh, it's a difficult one. I mean, you would have people who say, my dad supports independence, my mum is for the union. hmm and that argument's been going on um, for for generations. You know, there there are a lot of people in Southern Scotland who thought that the English troops coming up, and staying here was a good thing. It's a good thing because it stabilised the area. Uh, it stopped the Scots fighting each other because we do have a tendency to do that. It meant that trade could flourish, and it meant that it opened up the doors to Southern trade. Yeah. Because all the English had to do, if they were so minded, was block us from going to Berwick on Tweed. And that 's one of our major ports gone you then your next nearest port is Leith yep. going across, but if they can block your trade from berry on Tweed, then you 've not got things coming in and out from Flanders and the Low Countries so economically it makes a huge amount of economic sense for these English troops and not just the English troops, but the people who settled here, you know m- maybe Jimmy from. Dorset or whatever, right? And he comes up here to fight and he decides to stay because he's fallen in love with a girl from Kelso. And then he says, well, actually, my uncle down in Dorset, he's a grain merchant. I can put you in touch with him and I can put you in touch with this one and that one. So they have more contacts. They have trade contacts. They have, they have different innovations that they can bring in. So it actually becomes a positive. Starts off as a negative and war, but it can become quite a bit of a positive.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You are weaving the tapestry for me here (laughs) because what's going through my head as I listen to you are some of these phrases which send chills up my spine, like "Do you know who I am?" "Oh, yes." Um, "What are you doing here?" And and I take the view that if you live close to a border, you know everybody has to be somewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, You're going to have to be one side. Or another. Or
1: another, yeah.
0: And any cross-flow across that border is going to have a big impact on your view of the world. Yeah.
1: And I I think the thing about borders where you have that cross-flow of people, of information, of ideas, Mm. it's a positive. It's always a point because there's always something new or interesting that can cross that border and you can bat it back and forth and back and forth. And yeah, so a lot of... A lot of exciting things come about from cross-border.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm really not, as, as we move towards the end, I'm not sure if we've answered the question <laughs> how, Scottish how Scottish is, is the Scottish, Scottish borders, border's region.
1: I think what we might have to do is the next time round is invite a, a borderer on to uh, no doubt shout at us and tell them they're as Scottish as the next person. I think that's
0: a great idea um, <laughs> because we, we've laid ourselves open the accusation that neither of us is borders born and bred so we don't have that history to Mm -hmm. you know it's Mm -hmm. not in our blood in a sense but i think we've we've covered some interesting observations indeed the class system is I'm, i'm just thinking out loud now you have mentioned to me in the past some really interesting stuff on the lack of middle class in the, the, the borders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could you've, we end on that note? Because I found that fascinating.
1: We've got the Dukes of Clue and the Dukes of Roxburgh. Yeah. And you've got your farm workers, your mill workers. But the minute you start, to, and obviously in, in medieval times you would have your guild. And then we would have, um, the minute you start to get a bit of money, if you're a mill owner, you are middle class, but you aspire to be landed gentry. Ah. Classy example, Walter Scott. Yeah. Walter Scott wanted to be a borders laird. He was a middle class professional. Mm-hmm. He he was a lawyer, he was, he was an advocate, he was a yeah. middle class. Yeah. But that wasn't good enough. He didn't want to be in the middle class. He wanted to be a landed gentry. Ah.
0: Got to if a you
1: look at, yeah. uh, if you look at any of the towns in the borders that are mill towns, well, they're all mill towns really, Um, And you get these huge houses being built by the middle class. I mean, vast houses that they absolutely did not need. But it was to say, look at me, I've made it. I am a laird. I'm the equivalent of a laird. I might not have an estate, but I'm the equivalent of a laird. And so people get, they become as, as close as they can to being upper class and not middle class. Um, and they, mm-hmm. they push yeah. that away yeah. as much as possible. And then you've also got a working class that's quite a weak working class yeah. because you don't have the union organisation that you have in the board, in, in other areas in the borders. You just don't have that mm-hmm. class consciousness as much in the borders, which goes back to the deference we were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And so you end up, because if you're giving deference to the laird, if you're giving deference to the Duke of the Clu, then that's where your doctors and your lawyers and your your uh, accountants they're wanting to that's be that. That's the aspiration. That's yeah, the aspiration. Yeah, yeah. So the aspiration is not to be middle class because what you want is you want that bit of land. As I say you look at those huge houses in Gallashills and Hoyt with their massive gardens and I know people had larger families then but some of them are ridiculously sized. Look at the number of houses that are built and they have baronial aspirations. There are houses built with turrets and Mm -hmm. crenellated rooftops and, you know, you're thinking... You own a couple of mills, mate. Just calm it down. But that's the thing is, you're like, oh, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not working. And you, you join gentlemen's clubs and you a so you're aping the upper classes. You start gentlemen's clubs that you go to mm-hmm. and, and you go up to Edinburgh to discuss matters. And that's where that pool comes from up to Edinburgh to, to be seen to be a gentleman of worth. It's what you want to be, a gentleman of quality, not middle class. Because middle class is, well, you're sort of really just trade and you're sort of really not that far off working class, are you? So that's where that comes from.
0: That's very well explained and that fits in with my view (laughs) very much, yeah.
1: But just to finish on this, for all I may have possibly bash the borders a little bit here. It is an amazingly beautiful, wonderful part of the world. And the folk here are great. Yeah. Even though I have just spent the past 30 odd minutes saying not (laughs) very nice things about them, but they are great is, and I would encourage anybody to come and visit here because it's a fantastic place. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: It, it, it's, it's one of the reasons we started this podcast is often the, the, the magical history of the Scottish borderlands gets a little bit overlooked in the great tapestry of Scottish history. Yeah, uh, and indeed. that's one of the reasons we do this. So, yeah. of course, do come to the Scottish borders. Mary, great. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed that. And after that last bit you said, I think we have answered the question, <laughs> how Scottish <laughs> is the Scottish borders indeed. region?
1: This has been a great blather.
0: Thank you very much, and see you again next week.
1: Yep. Bye.